Voice Nation. Welcome to Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. This is Kevin Brown, your virtual ASR. No big teams here, just me, myself, and I. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. Last week, I introduced you to my wonderful cats, Hattie and Penny. Let's keep that feline theme going on for just one more minute, as it's important for our time together today. A family we're friends with here had to go out of town, and the question became, who's going to take care of the six cats? I know, right? So my daughter volunteered to keep an eye out and was given explicit instructions regarding one particular cat, Toby, who had quite the reputation for slipping out the door whenever you opened it. Well, sure enough, when she went into the house the first time, several of the cats darted out, with one in particular ending up underneath the deck. After a good hour of cajoling and treats, she finally got them all back in and sat down to watch a movie. So all the cats were settled down except for Toby. He went into the corner under the piano and just kept hissing and generally going nuts on the other cats. My daughter sent a text asking the family about this antisocial behavior that had now gone on for an hour. Yes, he is such a drama queen, came back the reply. So the movie was over and Toby was still growling and hissing two and a half hours later. It was almost comical at this point. So my daughter sent a picture of him to the family saying, the drama queen is still making drama. The granddaughter messaged back immediately, that's not Toby. That's not even our cat. After a quick head count, she realized there were now seven cats. Looks like we have a plus one. That Toby impersonator cat that was underneath the deck all along was a neighborhood cat that was somewhat feral and did not like being kept captive inside the house. So when she opened the door to get him back out, he purposely slowed down at the threshold, looked back at my daughter, and she swears he muttered a word that started with B and ended with H. He was not happy. Well, one thing that made me extremely happy was a message I got the other day from Chris, a very impressive young man at Medical Sales College right now. And he said the teacher of his class told all the students to listen to Device Nation. Very humbling to hear that. So today I am dedicating this segment to Chris and his freshman class as they plan their entree into the ever-exciting and ever-changing world of medical device sales. I know what you're thinking, Kevin. How in the world are you going to tie Electrofunk in with medical device sales? Well, hold my box opener. By the way, if you like this genre, DJ21 is just amazing. He's on YouTube, and he does a lot of the stuff that we did with Ultimix, these albums that had these custom mixes on it, and he's doing that, like, for real. Check it out. Let me know what you think. So here it was, mid-1980s. I was living the dream in Fort Lauderdale. And Big was cool. Big is cool. Big hair, big subwoofers, big dancing. Breakdancing was the rage at the time. My wife would tell you big shoulder pads, big dance clubs. I was on the scene learning DJ and lighting chops at Nepenthe, an amazing club built by a few neurosurgeons there. Stainless steel dance floor and probably the nicest lighting and sound system I have ever seen in my life in a nightclub. If you want to see it firsthand, Check out the Miami Vice episode, Calderon's Return. While you're at it, check out where the buses don't run. It's the seminal Miami Vice episode. And while you're at that, check out the clothes Don Johnson was wearing in those early seasons. Big fashion. Love that stuff. Big was cool. 
And as a medical device rep coming fresh out of that era, big just kept coming. Big commissions, big inventory. You need five sets of implants to cover this one low-volume surgeon. No problemo. Big status. This job had panache, gravitas. It was a big deal to be a detail rep. That's what they called us then in those days. Yeah, it's not the 80s anymore. It is 2022. But big is still a theme, right? But in a different way. Big teams, big changes, big cuts and commissions and inventory. A lot of reps are driving to Sri Lanka and back these days just to make sure they have what they need for cases tomorrow. And gas prices are not helping at all. Big disconnect with leadership in some quarters. Many reps do not feel like their leadership cares about what's going on with them anymore, which has all led to big disconnect discouragement for many. A distributor I respect greatly told me just the other day, this job just isn't fun anymore. I know that sounds annoying, but embrace the metaphor. I believe that statement to be wrong. I believe this job can be more fun now than it's ever been. Don't just take my word for it. Peter Cafaro of OrthoFeed wrote on LinkedIn just the other day, quote, I've been in orthopedics for 30 years and I can't remember a more exciting time in the industry. 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, robotics, wearables, AI, big data, unquote. So to Chris and your fellow classmates, here is your commencement address. Big is cool again. And let's look at some big ideas I wished I had grabbed onto much earlier in my career. Let's start with big expectations, right? You need to set high expectations for yourself, but coming into this particular job with that expectation on others, hey, I'm here, pay me X amount of money, even though I don't really know anything. Don't be that guy or girl. You're a liability for years in this business and are creating extra work for people around you until you get your sea legs. You know, I hired a rep like that one time with those unreasonable expectations, the give me a trophy mindset when they really haven't produced much. It was not a fun experience at all. And I was not unhappy when they left. So look in the mirror, stay humble, and don't be embarrassed to acknowledge a lack of knowledge, right? Be comfortable in what you know, but even more comfortable in what you don't know. And don't put unreasonable expectations on yourself or just as importantly, your employer, which leads to Big job or big career. Decide as soon as possible. Is this a job or is this a career? The caretaker rep just wants to cover cases, put trays back together, and go home. Nothing wrong with that if your team lead is okay with that. The overtaker rep says career. So what does that look like practically? Peter Cafaro mentioned 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, robotics, wearables, AI, big data. All of those spell big opportunities for you to become the distributor expert, as an example, and thus more valuable and potentially more compensated as a member of the team. A lot of reps out there who started out their calendars on daytimers, this host is included in that, feel much more comfortable in the analog world of this business. And as we turn the ship towards digital, maybe not so much. This spells a big opportunity for those in career mode that will work towards becoming that big expert on these new technologies. Career mode for me was spending an inordinate amount of time with product managers, senior reps, and surgeons gathering scraps of paper, information, reading journals to see what's new and exciting. I would borrow JBGSs from my customers to read the articles, but especially the first 15 pages or so, the ads. 
for the latest and the greatest. I wasn't doing any of this to get a raise or a promotion. It was just genuine curiosity about something that I'm passionate about. That's the difference between a job and a career. Well, lower your expectations if you see this as a job because people just don't bring sacks of cash to those people. But success will often follow those who grind that knowledge and experience base because of their passion and enthusiasm for this career. To that point, if you end up working for a big company, know that you have access to big resources, big modules. Oh, we love big modules, don't we? To develop yourself as the expert. Take advantage of that. Dedicate time each week to become extra in the midst of all these big changes we're going through right now. Speaking of changes, some changes are great, right? Like the Ram TRX, my favorite truck at the moment, even though it gets 11 gallons per mile. Some changes I don't like, like going to the grocery store this very morning and finding zero crunchy GIF. I could live off that stuff. Everything changes. The patients are experiencing changes. Your surgeons are experiencing great changes, as are the facilities you work at. We are not immune. Ask joint reps who represented companies like Halmedica, Biomet, Centaur. Remember that one? Kirshner, Osteonics, Intermedics, Right Medical. I could go on and on. Ask them about change as these companies are no longer even around in their original context. Change happens despite our protests. So no, here's big expectations again. The company you marry today, you walk down that aisle and exchange rings, just know that things are going to change. A merger, a distributor retirement, new people find themselves in the captain's chair and the thrill is gone. So with all the big change, just know that there's one thing that will not change and that is a non-compete, which takes us to big reality, right? It's their company. They can run it any way they want. If they choose to give everyone a million dollars a year with full benefit package or $20,000 a year with not even a gas card, well, that's their decision. They don't usually invite us to the table for counsel, which takes us to big wisdom. Ready for this? Here you go. Live off of 85% of your income and put the other 15% away. Why? I know so many Tobies in this industry that feel trapped because of that non-compete, and they have stuck themselves under the piano, and they just hiss and growl at all the other cats. Well, look, Toby, the door is not closed. It never was. You are free to leave the house and roam the neighborhood anytime you want. You just need to be prepared for that possibility. Everything is great until it's not, and then you have a choice to make. You can either treat it like a hostage situation, or you can take that expert status and hard work that you've done over the years, which we just talked about, and that can spell big mobility for you and your family. Or you can just hide under the piano. No, don't do that because you're going to miss the big opportunity. Let's do that again with more reverb, please. The The big Opportunity. If you're with a big company, there has never been more stuff going on than now. Some of that turnover that you're seeing is actually an opportunity in disguise for those who have done the work and are prepared to fill that hole. There are so many technologies coming online for you. Leverage that with some intentionality. It's going to take some work. If you want to strike out on your own and plant that pirate flag, there has never been a better time to do that, as this is the era of the big sideline as well as great recon, small, mid-sized companies to work with. A lot of great trauma offerings out there. The foot and ankle and spine folks are flourishing
flourishing in this business model, and I believe recon will be no exception. It's just going to take a little longer. So to Chris and all your classmates with that new car smell, I hope that helped. So much more to share on helping you find big opportunity amidst all the big changes. We'll be sharing that and so much more at the inaugural MedRep Society meeting October 7th and 8th in Charlotte, North Carolina. Reps of every experience level will hear from an incredible faculty of reps and surgeons. I respect. Did you catch that? Surgeons mentoring us on how we can find the fun again in this job. We made the start and stop time of this meeting rep friendly. We made the room rates rep friendly. Go to medrepsociety.com. Click on events and register today. We have an amazing exhibitor roster lining up for this event already. If you have a product that reps may want to consider having in their bag, click on the sponsorship tab. It's going to be an incredible time together. Look forward to meeting you all in person. A surgeon you're going to meet there just happens to be our next guest, Princeton Orthopedic Associate Surgeon and Rush Fellow, Dr. Brian Colt, bringing big passion and big enthusiasm for hip and knee reconstruction and the reps that work this space. A big device nation welcome to Dr. Brian Colt. Thanks for coming on the show, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk. Dr. Culp, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate having you. I so look forward to asking you about joint replacement, metal allergies, patella resurfacing, calcium sulfate beads, and much more. But first, let's go back to Akron, Ohio. What put you on the path to medicine, sir? Akron, Ohio, obviously that's in the Midwest. So that's where that's where my roots are. My family's from there. My whole family's from there. Um, I really kind of got started down the medical pathway, both through some family ties, but also through some personal experience. My, my grandfather was a hospital administrator uh, and in a former life a physical therapist. So kind of had a little exposure to the, we'll call it the clinical aspects of that. My mother, who was also a physical therapist, kind of followed in his shoes. So I, I did see a little bit of orthopedics growing up in my youth. As I was an athlete and had some injuries myself, I had a big ACL injury wrestling. Um, and so ultimately had to have my ACL reconstructed uh, at 18 years old and kind of got my interest piqued by the whole field of ortho. And so after I got better, I did some shadowing of the same guy that did my ACL and did a little bit more shadowing in, in some other medical fields and thought, all right, this is this is for me. You think we'd have more orthopedic surgeons if we just encouraged more teen, preteen sports related injuries? If we encourage more injuries, I think we would have more business, but maybe not more surgeons. You know, I, I don't know how if you're never exposed to the world of medicine or if you're never exposed to like a good doctor, how you may opt into this unless it's a family background thing. Right. So I do think, you know, uh, maybe doing a little bit more outreach in our community, not only for injured athletes, but even minorities or subsets of the population that are maybe underrepresented in our field, perhaps there's an opportunity to kind of grow their vision or grow that opportunity for them by inviting them to participate after they've had a, a touch with medicine. Totally agree, Dr. Culp. It's amazing to me how uh, all the people I've talked to, uh, how many of them ended up in this field because of a connection, either through an injury or through a family member at that impressionable young age. Well, on to a BS in molecular genetics at the Ohio State. I feel smarter just saying molecular genetics. What is a degree in molecular genetics all about, sir? I thought you were going to say you felt smarter saying the Ohio State. Uh, all right, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. IO, anybody? <laughs> all right, so uh, Molgen or molecular genetics is is basically, I mean, a lot of guys go into pre-med doing biology. Um, 
we'll call it the genetic molecular genetics is kind of at the cellular level talking about how DNA and RNA translate into proteins and how those proteins really turn into products that make the body work. So for me that, you know, that was a lot of basic science work. I spent a lot of time in the lab. I was, you know, working in cancer genetics doing, I had a lot of mice that were my little pets that uh, we, you know, we cultivated cell lines in and helped uh, help discover new oncogenes, pipetting and PCRing. So Genetics is a lot of just, we'll call it basic science work, but it certainly was a great foundational tool. And I think we're seeing the value of that because in 2002, genetics was kind of novel, but nowadays it is certainly not, right? It is going to be a mainstay portion of how we care for patients. Totally agree, sir. I, I, I was reminded as I was preparing to talk to you about a conversation I had with Dr. Doerr when he was with us, and he told me off the air that he felt like the future of orthopedics was this subject right here. It wasn't metal and plastic. It was working at the molecular level of a cell. Certainly, if we can find whether it's certain cartilage uh, genotypes and phenotypes that predispose folks to getting arthritis, we may prevent a lot of people from needing surgery, not unlike what we did with rheumatology many, many years ago. And I also think they're still going to have its place. Pharmacology with genetics has got a lot of room to grow, maybe figuring out which patients get which meds. And I think that also plays into the surgical field. I would second that wholeheartedly. I think there's you're going to see a, a boon of that coming in the years ahead of us. A minor in Spanish, not something you see every day, but certainly mission critical from my stint in Miami. What inspired you to learn another language? I guess not as critical in Akron, Ohio. It's a fairly confined area. For me, it was, I don't know, it, it kind of was born out of passion, I suppose. I, I was in Spanish class in middle school and high school. And my best friend and I, uh, who's who, my best friend was a neurosurgeon now, actually, both really got enthralled with Spanish culture, Spanish history. We ended up taking a trip to Spain, running with the bulls, kept connections with people we met over there. And so I just pursued it going forward in college just because it was enjoyable to me. And certainly it's paid off in dividends later in life. You know, I have cared for a lot of Spanish speaking patients. And I think it allows me to kind of talk to them on a level that allows them to communicate what they want. And I think they feel more comfortable. I may not be perfect at it, but they know I'm trying. So I think they value that. And and so it's it's been all around a wonderful decision in my life. Running with the Bulls. I've seen videos of this. Walk us through it. Yeah, I did that in 2002. So certainly a bucket list item if you if you want to make a trip to Pamplona is is amazing. It's a pretty small town. It's narrow streets. It's an interesting event to go through. There's there's so much culture and history and we'll call it a procession that goes with it from from the tying of the handkerchief when the when the rocket first launches at the start of the event right. to the washing of the streets before the run to watching the cops shuffle everybody out of the wet streets, especially the folks that are inebriated. And then the run itself, if you do a little bit of homework, is not as dangerous as it appears, but it is certainly, if you go in not prepared, the locals will kind of bat you along with the newspaper if you get in the way, but it's uh, it's something that's, it's a beautiful event. It's a beautiful pageantry. And I, and I think was a, one of my finest memories. Amazing stuff. Boy, did I learn the hard way as a young man that to madre es una piña is not a traditional Spanish greeting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, was I was completely misled by a prankster coworker. How hard is it to learn Spanish? If you were giving advice to somebody in the audience and saying, you know, I, I do need to add that to my repertoire. What's, what's the best method, you think? I think it certainly is easier when you start at a younger age like I did, but if you're coming at it later in life, if you live in an area where you're going to be encountering Spanish speakers frequently, 
it's certainly easier because you get frequent practice and frequent contact. Sure. And I think you gotta, you know, it's it's certainly easier to talk in your native tongue. But I think, you know, when a, when someone asks you something in a language or you can perceive, you say, would it be more comfortable for you if I tried to speak in Spanish? And most people will welcome it. And I think it's just a matter of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to keep trying it and trying it, and trying it. And just like all things that grows with practice. Well, let's go to the Ohio State College of Medicine and on to a surgery internship and residency at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. What was your experience like there, sir? Well, I say, as I mentioned is, you know, I love it. I, I'm, you know, you always bleed scarlet and gray for, for life. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to take in my med school education there after my undergrad. And I had great friends that helped me from my undergrad, made lots of great new friends in medical school that a lot of them shared the passion for ortho. I think we graduated 19 ortho folks in my uh, medical school year. It was certainly a great education. Uh, There's great opportunities at Ohio State. I had great mentorship from one of my mentors in medical school was Dr. Laura Pfeiffer, who's a traumatologist, and she kind of guided me down the path to orthopedics. So I think uh, Ohio State was great. I wouldn't change a bit of it. Robert Wood was the second part of that, which was my residence internship and residency, which Robert Wood Johnson is is now Rutgers. So for those of you that's in central Jersey, right by Johnson Johnson, actually. That program was great. I want to say I want to say blue collar, but it was a it was a working man's program. I mean, we were we were grinding. We were in the ER and the trauma bay and and you know, but again, just just like medical school, I had a, a group of four guys with uh, my, myself and three other guys that were my best friends still today and, and kind of supported one another. And when things got tough, they were there. And when things were great, they were there to pat you on the back. So I had great co-residents and, and great mentorship there, especially in the world of orthopedics, uh, going into adult recon, which was kind of what my goal was. I had a couple of great mentors, Dr. Harwood and, and Dr. Alfred Tria, who was kind of my biggest mentor through residency and kind of guided me through not only minimally invasive stuff to how to do a, a great knee revision to how to kind of plan cases and interact with my vendors. And he was really helped pave the way into adult recon for me. What an icon, Dr. Alfred Tria. I got a chance to see him speak on many an occasion. And not only was he just an, an amazing speaker, very entertaining, uh, he just seemed to have a real heart for the people around him. What a guy. I mean, he's always laughing, always kept it light in the operating room, just an expert surgeon with every product coming out fantastic. So he was a great person to watch and learn from. And really, I wouldn't probably be doing what I'm doing were it not for him. So I have a huge respect for him. He showed up at a Zimmer meeting one time in spandex and a cape. I'm still trying to get that image out of my head. It was all in good fun and just a lot of respect that he had the the guts to do something yeah, like that. Yeah, thanks for putting hilarious. that image in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Last stop, one of my favorite places, Rush University for Adult Reconstruction. Tell us about your experience there. It had to be amazing. I mean, Chicago is an amazing town for starters. If you know everybody who's ever been there, well, it's a beautiful place right on the water. Great food, great diversity. Just you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place to have lived for a year. So that was awesome. Uh, I had again great co-fellows and great peers who, you know, four of which are still, again, guys I talk to almost on a daily basis, bouncing off cases or telling war stories or old jokes. So a great group of guys, which makes every place a good place to be. And obviously another great group of guys was the mentors that I had there. Um, I mean, all rock stars, Dr. Richard Berger, Wayne Poprowski, Scott Sporer, Craig Delavalle, Aaron Rosenberger, Josh Jacobs, Brett Levine, Ted Gerlinger, all amazing you know, it, what a what a opportunity and what a what a you know wonderful unique experience for me to be able to learn from each one of those guys who are 
who are rock stars. Um, so I, you know, I had, I had great, there was great medical students and residents that worked with us. Um, we had great device reps there, learned a lot from some of like my Zimber guys, like, like Mike Wood and a bunch of guys who are instrumental on how I think about surgery and my preparation. So, uh, it was, it was, you know, seen from an MIS surgery with Richard Berger to a distraction technique with Paprosky, talking about metal allergies with Josh Jacobs and just life lessons from Aaron Rosenberg. What a great year. I had an amazing conversation with Dr. Rosenberg some time ago, and it was just incredible. Some of the cases that he would tackle. He was kind of like the sage by the time I came through. A lot of the life lessons that I'm living, I just had how to cultivate my own life came from Rosie. Just approaching and tackling how to be a doctor, not necessarily handling a case. I mean, Rush was just, you know, again, all around amazing. The OR cases were amazing. I mean, watching Dr. Richard Berger do minimally invasive surgery through an incision that, you know, was almost too small to put implants through and putting in right. a total knee or, or a partial knee or all the major things that he did through such tiny work was at that time point for me, amazing. And now we're all doing outpatient surgery. So that was a great opportunity. We saw major op the opposite end of the spectrum with Paprosky doing like discontinuity or huge bone loss cases with Spore taking on tough infections with Della. Um, I think some of those exposures there, which are unique to any fellowship, we got regularly at Rush. So it was it was just a great broad spectrum of how to handle an adult recon world. So let's fast forward, sir. Here we are in New Jersey, Princeton Orthopedic Associates. Tell us about your practice. Princeton Ortho is a, it's a great place to work. I'm very happy here. My wife and kids are very happy here. So obviously a great place to live in Princeton. Uh, I, I run a private practice. So I'm a partner in private practice, which is really not a, it's not a private demics. It's not academic. We're, we're true private, which I think is, I don't want to say it's, you know, I don't want to say it's unique, but it's, it's certainly important to maintain that cohort of doctors in our field. I think that, you know, learning how to manage office staff to managing billing and all the pieces that come with running a private practice without residents and fellows to do some of the legwork with you is great. I have autonomy. I have, you know, a seat at the table for tough decisions. So it's, it's a really, a really a great place to live and work and very much all that I was looking for in a practice. Pretty amazing to me that what we're dealing with a lot on the rep side, larger teams, same thing that's going on on the surgical side, rolling into super groups, practices merging, uh, we're seeing the same thing in our world, uh, teams merging, just trying to go for that economy of scale. I mean, I think, unfortunately, with every margin and everything dwindling in the world, like you have to do that. You have to get large and, and leverage those economies of scale. And I think that's true in the surgical world. You know, we just rolled up into a ortho New Jersey super group. And, and just like in the rep world, I mean, you got to kind of spread the sauce a little thinner and thinner and make it taste the same. So it's, I agree, that's that's what we're seeing everywhere. Good phrase. By the way, kudos to your website designer, all those smiling pictures of you. I, I looked at your website. I had this happy feeling. It made me want a joint replacement. <laughs> Good work. She's, she's awesome. So yeah, I will send that message along. What is your most fun case, sir, as you look at your surgery schedule? Anything in particular that you really love to do? I really like partial knees. I don't know if that came out of the Rush Burger opportunity or, you know, the Della Valley. We we saw a ton of partial knees, but I I, I like doing medial unis. I, I like doing lateral unis. I like a PFJ. I think they're exciting. I feel like I'm preserving the patient's own anatomy. It's a little bit more challenging because you're working through tight windows to make sure that you get all the cuts perfect and you cement it perfect. You're not leaving anything behind. So 
I think that's, you know, when I see that in the OR schedule, it's like, all right, I'm excited. I hear that a lot from surgeons. I always enjoyed as a rep what you said, the PFJ doesn't get a lot of love in some quarters, but when it's done right, what an amazing procedure. You don't see a lot of patients with isolated patellofemoral arthritis, and certainly you got to raise an eyebrow or get an MRI, as Jess Lauder would probably teach us all. But, um, but man, when you get one, they're happy and they they, they get better so quick. So yeah, I agree. It's a great, great case. I was looking at your website, Dr. Culp, and you advertise posterior and anterior hips. Not wanting to open up a can of worms here, but in, in your mind, is one definitively better than the other or is it six, one half, half a dozen the other? Yeah, we don't want to open that can of worms. <laughs> no, I mean, I have had exposure to both. My residency was a lot more anteriors. My rush fellowship was a lot more posteriors. I came back, started doing posteriors and I drifted back into anteriors and now I'm kind of go back and forth. I don't know if it's 50-50, sometimes a little more one way or the other. I think it's valuable as a, as a hip surgeon to kind of know the anatomy circumferentially. So, you know, when you're looking at it from the back, what does it look like in your head when you're staring at it from the front? I think you can do that because you're looking at it from both directions. To answer your question directly, is one better than the other? Hip, hip replacement is such a great surgery. I don't know if you're making huge differences, whether you have come through the front or whether you've come through the back. I think patients get better. Uh inevitably because hip such a hip surgery is such a great surgery. And there's certainly certain patients that do better when you're when you're coming at them from the back or the front. You know, you got to kind of tailor it to the patient's needs. If they've got a large abdominal penis or or a deformity or you need a great shot of the femur, I think a posterior approach is an excellent surgery and has great outcomes. I think anterior surgery is very elegant working in the internervous plane and it, patients feel really great. A lot of patients ask for it. So um, I go back and forth and I think they're both great. The circumferential hip surgeon. I love that line. Well, sir, it's just a function of being in this business a long time. It's been interesting to see the trends of what stem designs come into vogue and then what goes out. I'm starting to see a trend on the primary side and the revision side in the market right now. I was just curious, what what's your go-to on both of those categories? Well, I don't, I don't want to take all the credit for that circumferential phrase. I, one of my colleagues coined that. So let me at least give credit where credit is due. As far as STEM goes, you know, I used to be a, like a blade STEM user, like most, like most folks. And I, I have changed a lot more to kind of like a more modern fit and fill, like a brooch only fit and fill. So, right. you know, I, most of the vendors are having, having products now that serve that need. But I think, you know, I, I often use Medacta or Depew, you know, so I use like a an Acta stem or an Amis stem for that regard. But I, I like a fit and fill stem. I, I think it feels better to me. I feel a little bit safer uh, using that type of a stem just than, than a blade stem. On a revision side, I you know I kind of default to a spline tapered stem or a Wagner style stem. And so again, most of the vendors have a great product. I, I use again Medacta and Depew for that, but uh, a spline tapered stem is a great workhorse. And and I think that's how I handle most of my tough cases. We've come a long way from shoving the biggest circumferentially porous coated cylindrical stem we can in there, haven't we, sir? Well, when you got to take one of those out, it makes you double double check before you put one in. <laughs> it really does. On the knee side. I'm opening fewer boxes these days that have a patella in them. Uh, and I'm just curious, what's going on in your neck of the woods with patella resurfacing? I am slowly tapering off on the frequency at which I resurface a patella. You know, I'm very far from St. Louis where that's the, where that's the norm, but I think that trend is spreading. At Penn, which is one of our affiliate hospitals, a lot more folks are leaving the patella alone. Look, everybody knows the data, right? The data from Europe is that the that there's not a major difference when you resurface or don't resurface. But I think a lot of us do it out of fear for a lawsuit or fear from a 
one of your colleagues down the road saying, hey, he only did two thirds of the surgery. But I think as the trends change, it becomes more and more acceptable. And I think the reason why you're seeing a shift is, A, obviously the, the femurs are much more patella friendly. So it enables us to do that more confidently. But I also think that, you know, there's a cost savings measure to it potentially, and also just a risk prevention, right? You know, an extensor mechanism problem is not a, is, is one of the worst things that can happen. Leaving the patella alone when you can is, is protecting some of that native anatomy. So that's a little bit in conflict with me doing a PFJ, but ultimately I do leave a lot more of my, my total knees on resurface. Have you ever left a PFJ on resurface? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do that one yet. No. That, that's a bridge too far. Infected joints, a topic nobody likes to talk about, but they invariably come your way. Have you dipped your toe in the 1.5 exchange waters for those? I, I have, and I realize that may be a little bit controversial, but I, I think there are definitely some positives of doing that. I, I think the principles of infection control don't change, right? You got to do a good, thorough debridement, get all that junk out of there, all the cement, anything that could ha- harbor a biofilm and then deliver some high-dose local depot antibiotics. And I think there's a, there's lots of great ways to do that, whether you want to do it static, whether you want to do something prefab. I think the upside of using the, the one and a half, as you'll say, is that you're, you're putting in metal and plastic that feels better for the patient. At our institution, it's fairly cost-neutral if I want to do that versus something prefab. So I think it, I, you know, I don't, again, I don't think you can get away from the principles of infection control. But I think patients feel happier. I let them walk a little bit more and many of them ride it out for a bit longer. And I think that's probably a good thing. So for me, as long as it's a relatively well fixated one and a half that you're not generating bone loss or some other problems that you're going to have to solve. It's a good solution for a lot of people. I think the industry is catching up with that trend a little bit. I'm starting to see more companies offer a longer-stemmed all-polytibia with some thicker surface options. We're almost there where there's a nice little bag of options product-wise. I hope that's not an all-polytibia option because you know we're trying to find cost-saving measures to give patients a different implant from a primary standpoint. Maybe that's why you're seeing that, but I certainly hope, you know, look, it's it's a good solution. Not that all polytibias are not a great solution for a primary. Forgive me for saying that if I offended anybody, but uh, it's it's certainly a good option for for we'll call it a one and a half. You doing anything intraoperatively to to fight those bugs? Any postoperative wash? Any uh, what what are you doing? Again, thorough debridement is critical. You know, we we have a bunch of choices at our institution. Whether that you want to use like a dilute chlorhexidine type bath, which is, I don't know if we're allowed to say brand names, but Irisept is, you know, something we have. We have Bactasure, which is a Zimmer-based product that's kind of like acetic acid. It smells like vinegar. We have obviously Betadine, and I, and I realize there's publications out there about Betadine and revisions and, and whether or not that actually improves our outcomes. I think intuitively using some form of solution to help debride a little bit, kill bacteria that may not be otherwise killed with you know, simple saline and a, and a thorough manual debridement, I think seems to me to be valuable. So I, I often use betadine, but I'll use one of those adjuncts, chlorhexidine or, or back to shore type device when, when I'm treating a, bu- a bad bug. Do you think that expense makes any sense in a primary scenario? I think betadine does. I think there's, you know, there's good cost-effective studies out of Rush, out of the Rothman Institute that demonstrate the value of betadine. Agreed. In the primary setting, using things like chlorhexidine baths or bactyshore acetic acid, I, you know, those are a bit more costly and I don't know if they 
really gain you more than something simpler like a betadine. So in our cost containment world of bundles and everything else that we're facing, to me, to me, that's less logical. Well, we're talking about infection. I had to ask you this question. I've seen so many of these cases where antibiotic calcium sulfate beads were used, and you did a presentation on their efficacy. What did you discover, and did it surprise you? Well, so we did those in the setting of component retention. So let me at least kind of condition the study, which was that we used uh, antibiotics delivered through dissolvable calcium sulfate beads when components were retained, and it didn't markedly change the eradication rate for infection. I think that they may have their role, right? Again, you can't substitute for good debridement and getting out whatever's got a biofilm in there, and I don't know if you know different, different adjuncts may eventually attack biofilms differently, but I think delivering antibiotics locally is a critical piece of it. And sometimes there's not a great way to do it in the soft tissue. So if you're, I think there's some role maybe, and especially in like dead space and soft tissues where you put a little bit of that in and it doesn't have a lot of drainage in my hands. So I think that it, it can still be useful. I saw your name recently attached to a product that I have been honored to represent in many a hip and a knee, IntelliJoint. How do you like it? I love IntelliJoint. I first saw it at Rush in my fellowship with Dr. Paprosky, and I've been really using it since. I think it's 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 got a lot of value for me. It, it helps take a little bit of the mental burden of surgery away because it's giving me data to improve what I'm what I'm deciding upon at the end of a case. And I don't think you always get that data via other means. For example, on a posterior hip, you're you're like kind of touching the tibial tubercles and you're shucking the hip and feeling what the soft tissue feels like. I think that's a little bit subjective to me. And I, and I think obviously with one of the biggest lawsuit reasons being leg length discrepancies, I think having some data to make a decision is very helpful. And I also think patients like it. You know, patients, this is a far more consumer-driven world than maybe even a decade ago. And patients like the reassurance that I'm going to get your numbers correct, that I've got a tool to help employ in my operating room to get you a perfect outcome. And I, and I really think and they're happy to hear that. It really is interesting that we've kind of come to the place in device history where patients are going to ask about leg lengths. Patients ask about everything, right? <laughs> patients <laughs> ask about what surgical approach you're going to use, uh, whether, whether or not I'm using a tool like a robot or a navigation or a computer to help them do surgery, what I'm going to be sewing them clothes with, you know, what I'm going to be giving them for pain pills. Uh, like they, it, this is really a, a unique space to be working as far as the market. But, but I, again, I, I, if I were a patient, I would probably ask the same question. Absolutely. Real quick question on knee replacement. I saw a presentation you did regarding the longevity of hinged knee replacement. Just curious, what did, what did you find out about that? Yeah, that, I mean, that was a study at Rush that we kind of went through our data and looked at RHK knees and what the failure rates were and, uh, you know. Unfortunately, it's a pretty high number. It's like thirty over thirty percent failure rate. I think hinge knee replacements are an evolving topic here, especially in the United States. And, and what I mean by that is, in Europe, I think they're far less hesitant to put in a hinge knee. In fact, there's lots of institutions that use them more frequently in primaries. I think it's you know in the U.S. and certainly in my training, it was you use it when you have no ligaments or extension mechanism problems and or massive bone loss and you're not reconstructable and you're doing a distal femoral replacement. And so, of course, you're going to have really high complication rates and really high failure rates. Right. I think in Europe, they're using them on, I don't want to say more benign cases, but they're using them a bit more frequently on less complex causes. And I think, therefore, their numbers may be a little bit better than ours. So I think we may see that space change a little bit, especially as we get better tools for fixation with cones and sleeves and other 
ways to get biologic fixation of an implant to the bone because it does have a role. And I think that role may expand over time. A surgeon told me almost 30 years ago, when there's an argument between the body and an implant, the body always wins. And I've often wondered if some of the failure rate of hinge knees is just that fact. That may be true, but I know you quoted Larry Dorr before. And Larry Dorr used to say, you sometimes have to solve a biology problem with a technology, right? So technology, doctor, where does robotics fit into your practice? I did some robotics. I used the Mako device for a while, a couple of years back in my practice. And for me, it was not as valuable as it is for some other doctors. So I kind of discontinued its use. The cost added time, the advanced imaging that was needed, um, I don't think they were really affecting my outcomes. So I, I, I don't use the anymore. And when I need technology, like for hardware or something, I often use like patient-specific instrumentation. I've been also trialing out some augmented reality products in the operating room, and I think they have promise from a from a delivery of of desired outcomes as far as making your cuts at a certain angle or balancing ligaments. But I also think that where robotics may fall short and other tools climb ahead is portability. You know, I think we're all moving into an outpatient space, and I always got frustrated when they would tell me that I couldn't bring my Mako to the ASC to do a uni. I said, well, then I'm not going to use a tool. I'm just going to go do the uni. So I think you know, where we are in technology is not where we're going to be another decade later. I've been fascinated by that whole augmented reality space for a long time. I feel like it's given you a lot of the same information that the robotic platform's doing, but in a much more compact package for the ASC and the hospital. And there's the cost aspect. Certainly from a cost aspect, my partners don't want to buy a big capital purchase. So I think, you know, anything that can be case per use cost is certainly more palatable for those guys. But I think that portable technologies are the future, in my mind, because we are, we are not all in one footprint. But that, that may change. I do think, however, you know, technology is going to have a place, just like we talked about for hips. You know, we're all kind of, I don't want to say dabbling, but we're all considering alternative alignment philosophies, whether or not you are a believer in kinematic alignment, whether or not you are using some form of gentleman's anatomic varus or some restrained kinematics or i think there's a space there that we don't really know how it's going to bear out yet i've done some ka myself and I, i do think it has promise and i think having some form of technology may inevitably make that safer and also more reproducible so i i think it's i think it's here to stay how it looks in a decade from now Time will tell. Glad you brought that up about KA. I'm looking at Dr. Howell's textbook right here in front of me. That alignment technique is just exploding in Europe right now. You've been pretty happy with your results so far? I have, yeah. I I went out and visited Dr. Howell last year. I've done a number of cases, and the patients seem to like them. Obviously, I don't have long-term data to go back and say how these bear out over five, 10 years, but they certainly are no worse than my primaries in a mechanically aligned fashion, and I think maybe a little bit better. So I think we'll, we'll see. Let's talk about metal allergies for a second, Dr. Culp. I remember a time when many surgeons considered that whole concept to just be a non-issue, but that was then. This is now. Where are we now on this subject? I think it's still a space that we're exploring. You know, I, I had the pleasure of learning from Josh Jacobs uh, when I was at Rush and also in the lab with Nadim Halab. I think there's merit to the fact that there's probably a passive protein coating of the prosthesis that probably prevents it from the antigens causing any systemic type allergic reaction almost always. But 
certainly all the metal on metal hip stuff has really made us think differently about cobalt and chromium. So you see companies that are kind of coming out with more and more options. Oxinium has been on the market for a long time and is a great product. But I think more companies are coming out with like tin alloys. Certainly there are ceramics in Europe. And so I think that it's an interesting space, probably requires further explanation. And as Dr. Rosenberg would say, there's no free lunch. So we don't know yet what the long-term consequences of all these alternative bearing surfaces will be, but certainly I think it deserves exploration. Dr. Culp, let's step out of the OR for a second. There's 21 named storms for this year, and some would argue that the business of medicine should be number 22. You are part of the AUKUS Business of Total Joint Replacement course, and your name is on so many other business-related courses. Give us a state of the union on this very relevant topic. It's an interesting thing, the business of medicine. We, we were not taught this, right? When we were in medical school, we were not taught this in residency. It's not a fundamental part of our training in, in medical school. And so I think a lot of people come out not knowing anything. Many people probably feel like it doesn't apply to them. Certainly, if you work for a hospital, people are making those decisions for you. But I think it's a critical aspect of being a surgeon, right? You, if, if you're going to farm over all that control to another entity, whether that's a hospital you lose control. You lose control of how you care for patients, how your life gets run, and you become, quote unquote, a provider, as we're called now, or just kind of a cog in the wheel where you're equivalent to another advanced practitioner. I think we got to understand, you know, you're, you're obliged to understand the world that you work in from a business standpoint. And I think that this space is changing really rapidly. I mean, private equity is entering into the market. You know, I mentioned our group has rolled up into a larger entity or a super group. A lot more people are going straight into employment, and I think the field is changing. And, and certainly, if you don't if you don't understand how the direction is going to look, or at least understanding at a cursory level what these three different concepts are going to look like, you may not. You know, certainly, if you ever need to change a practice, you may not be able to control your own destiny. So, I think it's critical. You know, E and M coding changed last year, and a lot more dollars are being funneled away from the operating room and into the office setting. So, you got to understand how to build better and be efficient in the op and in the office ancillary revenue streams are being affected by new laws so i think that that's certainly something we should all be on top of because a lot of us depend upon that for some of our income and i think there's a lot of organizations out there advocating for us both in academy aos and AUKUS are doing great work in washington dc and a lot of people don't even realize how much work goes into that and and so i think these non-clinical things are you know you should at least have a cursory understanding of what's going on because it affects you nevertheless. Agreed, sir. A natural extension of this very conversation is an incredible organization you're a part of, the Foundation for Physician Advancement. Surgeons mentoring surgeons on these very business of medicine topics. Any advice on this subject to surgeons that may be listening? Firstly, FBA or Foundation for Physician Advancements is a great organization that I've been able to be fortunate enough to kind of collaborate with some of my co-surgeons. It's been a real privilege to be part of it and get this thing off the ground to try and educate younger surgeons on what we just talked about, right? They didn't get that in their training. So we're hoping to kind of fill that gap. How do you look at a contract? How do you manage your life? How do you set up a practice? What mistakes can you learn from from maybe from, from Brian Culp rather than mis- making that same mistake yourself when you start in practice? I think it's really great for young guys to learn from the mistakes of others without having to make those same mistakes themselves. So it's it's really great that we're able to kind of give back to our community and kind of teach what what I'm saying, which is to to kind of understand your destiny and understand how to 
how to be part of a practice and understand the business of medicine. And so certainly for those of you that have an interest, I mean, we're, we're expanding the courses that we're doing and certainly would be welcoming anybody to participate. Got a spring meeting coming up, building a successful practice.org. If you're a rep listening, make sure you let your young surgeon know about this incredible opportunity. As we talk about surgeons, Dr. Culp, I know the subject of physician wellness is a real passion of yours. I've worked with stressed doctors over the years that have neglected this topic, so it's definitely a thing. What does wellness mean to you? We often as surgeons kind of just get the mindset of being the guys who put your head down and grind. And I think that's probably what we are innately, but there's a lot more that we can be to deliver better outcomes for our patients. So I think of I think of the operating room or I think of surgery a little bit like an athlete. And so, you know, we we train a skill set. You have to execute a task. You got to throw strikes after strikes after strikes and it's got to be consistent and you got to get better at it. And it can't fade as you as you get further along in your career. So I, I think of it a lot like I'm playing a sport. And so we can learn from what athletes do for themselves, like an Olympic athlete. So there's a lot of reading material out there on this topic. You know, I had done some kind of we'll call it professional or executive coaching courses online on this topic. And there's a lot of recurring themes, which I won't belabor too much, but you know, sleep. We often don't sleep. Most of us are proud of the fact that we need very little sleep. And I've really taken a different look at that over the years. I use an aura ring to track my sleep at night. I track my trends when I don't do a wind down routine, when I eat too late and how it affects my outcomes in the operating room. I think exercise, obviously we all are kind of, many surgeons are athletes a little bit and want to go to the gym, but you know, there's certain things that you need to make it through an OR day, not only core training and flexibility and stamina, but also the grit training that comes with being in the gym and persevering through a hard set is a lot like persevering through a hard part of a case. Reflection or we'll call it meditation or creating some mental space for yourself is another big wellness concept. And I, I think as much as it sounds a little bit kitschy to, to meditate or just, you know, to have mindfulness, I know that's a buzzword that probably gets a little bit too much overplay, but Creating a little bit of space mentally outside of the operating room in your life helps you practice for when you encounter a stressor in the operating room. How do you step back from a situation where you're being overwhelmed? Pause, get the emotion out of your head, analyze your options, execute. I think that's not different than a basketball player shooting free throws. You got to get out of your own head and sometimes just get out there and shoot hoops. So I think a lot of these things are critical things that we can continue to develop in ourselves. And I also think they help your mental well-being. I heard an interesting statistic. It's not unique to orthopedics, but we certainly are amongst the higher category in the surgical world of physician suicides and physician burnout, physician depression. So I think these things also help you just live a better quality of life. If if you're sleeping and well-rested and well-exercised, you tend to be a happier um, and, and, you know, aside from just mental well-being, um, you know, there's a lot of physical harm or physical occupational hazard in the operating room. We're doing surgery, you know, 10, 20 surgeries at a pop week after week for 20 years. You know, that can really, you know, I know a lot of my mentor surgeons who've had joint replacements or neck surgery. So I, I think about that now in my early portion of my career. How do I last for the long haul and try to think about the ergonomics of what I'm doing and the efficiency of motions and how can I change a portion of my case to 
prevent lifting a leg twice when I could do it once. And I think that's something that we all need to kind of develop in ourselves if we want to sustain for a long time. Dr. Culp, I'm a gadget guy and I didn't even know what a aura ring was until you brought that up. That's going in my Amazon shopping cart. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, that is a cool piece of technology. Yeah. I mean, look, I, a lot of us like games, a lot of people watching their step count. It's really interesting to watch like how many hours of deep sleep versus REM sleep you got or when you got in bed, when you actually passed out. So, you know, Apple Watch has that and there's other tools that do it. But I think this is a great one. And I've had three of them. You, sh you should get one. They're cool. It struck me the other day, Dr. Culp, just how historical this is. A vendor agnostic, A-list surgeon, an active rep infused meeting to mentor medical representatives on how to thrive in these perilous times. So excited and so pumped that you're part of it. Yeah, I think this is going to be a great opportunity for collaboration. You know, we're we're all playing at the same game, right? You guys are feeling the same financial pressures we're seeing. Every case we do is getting cut. You guys are getting implant prices and reimbursements are cut. You guys are spreading yourselves thinner and thinner and more and more operating rooms. And, you know, I know I talked to you a little bit before this, Kevin. You got to go in on a Saturday and prep a case for the next day. I mean, it's, 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 it's like our world is just never ending. So All I right. think this is really a great opportunity to put like minded people together to come up with strategies and, and, and again, to just like I said, not reinvent the wheel. Some people have great ideas they're already leveraging, sharing them in a communal setting to solve some of the problems that we're, that we're all seeing. I work a lot with reps in my own hospital in, a, in an administrative role in our practice in the joint replacement world. So I, I hear a lot about this from the reps from having a dirty trays and how many trays they have to use to back up stuff in the OR or all the supply, supply chain issues that we're facing or paying for these stupid rep scrubs that I don't really know if they do anything, <laughs> but someone is happy about them. So I, I think, look, we're all on the same team because we're all ultimately delivering a product to help take care of patients. So I think that we can all learn from one another. And maybe you guys have things that I take back to my OR and my practice. And if I have anything that could help you guys uh, make your lives easier or organize a schedule. Or I even told one of my reps that she had to like lug all this stuff around to get in and out of a case. And I'm like, here's how I carry all my big pile of junk. And I, you know, maybe that's something that <laughs> someone's already come up with a strategy to save her back rather than her having a back problem and needing a back issue. Right. So I think that there's this is a team sport and I think it's better when we all work together. I had a great conversation yesterday with a Depew distributor that I really respect and, and just love talking to him. It's just such a, an inspiring character to me. And it occurred to me in the middle of that conversation, there's not a lot of options out there for personal development specific to our space. So I, I'm really excited about this organization and, and what it can bring to people out there working in the OR. I, I would attend just to hear Dr. Booth speak, our keynote speaker. His son is a rep, so I can't wait to hear his thoughts on us. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is going to be a great opportunity. From what I've heard from you so far, the plan as far as the course content is going to be great. I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear people's wellness concepts because it applies to reps as well and just balancing life and man managing what you do in the operating room and in, in the home. I think this is really going to be a great opportunity. And, and uh, 
I think we're all going to walk away better for it. Well, Dr. Culp, I just want you to know that you inspired me to add that subject to the itinerary because it occurred to me when you were talking about physician wellness, how many reps that I know in this space, and I'm one of them, that have had cardiac procedures as a result to what we have dealt with doing this job long term. And I I think that's a subject worth exploring. As Don Henley said, who is going to make it? We'll find out in the long run, right? And I think there's a way that we need to look at how we're uh, doing life in a job that has a lot of demands physically, uh, a lot of demands uh, stress level-wise uh, of how we can give ourselves the best opportunity for longevity. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, just like being a, a surgeon is a skill set that takes years of training, a good rep is, who's a seasoned rep is an indispensable skill set. And if someone gets burned out or phases out early or has a health issue that takes them out of the game early, what a major loss to our field. What a major loss to patients. What a major loss as a surgeon for me to lose an experienced rep. Whatever we can do to make it easier to endure the long haul uh, in both sides of the coin is a great thing. Well, Dr. Cope, I have thoroughly enjoyed hearing your thoughts today, and I look forward to your presentation on rep wellness in October. Uh, Excited about everything you have going on up there in New Jersey. You are doing awesome things. A real honor to have you on Device Nation today. Yeah, thank you for having me. What a pleasure. A huge thank you, Dr. Brian Culp. That was some big stuff right there and so appreciated your thoughts and your heart. For us box openers, hope that puts something in your gas tank for the week and you got a few smiles per gallon along the way. Medical sales college students, I hope you were encouraged somehow. It is not the 80s anymore. You don't want to see me in parachute pants these days. No way. It's 2022, an incredible moment in history to be called a detail man or woman. You know, we're all about creating additional streams of revenue for the Device Nation audience, a show that pays you back. Reach out to me at extendedoffset at gmail.com. I love that email address. If you'd like a personal introduction to the wonderful folks at IntelliJoint, they're going to be at the October Med Rep Society meeting for a personal demonstration of their technology. Look, big is cool again. It really is. And I look forward to getting bigger together with you. Device Nation. Device Nation.